think we need to open with prayer after that. love you, Lord. Lord God, thank you for your love for us and your patience and your forgiveness. We would be absolutely nowhere without your word and without your guidance and your direction. Thank you so much for this morning. In the sun that's out here, and I pray that you would um, speak to me and through me, and that we would all hear from you this morning, and that it would be glorifying to your name. Amen. All right, young kids, uh, I'm sorry that that um, I'm not out there with you right now, but I, I promise you that if it is the will of the Lord, you will make it through this sermon. That's a guarantee. If, if it's God's will, you're, you're still going to be breathing um, when I'm all done with this sermon. And uh, it, it may be a long sermon, but if we keep our ears open and we focus on the words, maybe God's going to speak to all of us and grow all of us this morning. So, uh, I, I had a, a job um, in the past where uh, I had this boss where he, he wasn't there often. And I would go into his office um, lots of times and I'd look around for him and, and uh, I had a question or, uh, from time to time and lots of times he wasn't there. And then the times where he was there, I'd go in there and I'd ask a question and he often didn't know the answers to my questions and he would kind of point me elsewhere. And uh, he never really sat me down at the beginning of when I started working for him to kind of give me an idea of what my role was supposed to be or the parameters of my job. And it was really frustrating. I know that doesn't really sound too frustrating. Some people wish their boss wasn't there at all. Um, but, but I still wanted to know a little bit of direction and guidance, what my role was supposed to be. And about a year or so later, um, I had a buddy of mine that started working with me, and I noticed that he was starting to get some of the same frustrations. Um, he, was, he was super excited to do the job that we were doing. But he just wanted a little bit of guidance. He just wanted to know what was his role supposed to be. Well, the good news is, is that God is our perfect boss. He knows the answers to all of our questions. And he has given us a perfect design and role for us to have while we're here on this earth. And <clears throat> we began our summer series about three weeks ago um, with all sorts of different questions that people have had from um, our congregation. And so right now what we're going to do is we're going to kind of have like this little three-sermon mini-series on roles. I'm going to preach today on what it means to be man, and then Pastor Bob's going to teach the following two Sundays on what it means to be a woman, what it means to be man and woman in church and in marriage. And it may seem like these are three extremely important questions that just don't really need to be talked about. On face value, they, they just seem, maybe they're common, like we, we shouldn't need to talk about them too much. But the truth is, 
roles, gender roles and issues are at the forefront of a lot of what's going on in our society today. There is so much confusion. What does it mean to be a godly man? What does it mean to be a godly woman? What does a godly marriage look like? Well, God created us male and female with distinct roles for a reason. And He called us to come together and have families for a reason. And we're going to be happiest when we embrace God's design for our God-given roles. Since this message is the first of three in this three-part series, I thought it would be a good idea to go where relationship began. So we're going to look at where relationship begins within the Trinity. And we know in the Trinity, there's the Godhead. There's three persons. They're equal in importance, equal in power, equal in deity, but they have different roles. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as you know, um, it's often referred to as the dance. And I like this picture of the dance because um, I picture, you know, a, hu- a husband and wife um, dancing, maybe uh, doing the waltz. I don't know how to do the waltz, but maybe doing the waltz. Uh, the guy's leading and the, the woman's uh, following along in the waltz. And uh, when they first started learning how to dance, maybe the, you know, the guy, I've been told before I had spaghetti arms. So maybe, maybe the guy had spaghetti arms and there's a little bit of sto- uh, toe stepping and stuff like on each other's toes. And uh, the roles get reversed sometimes. But as time goes on, as you learn more about that dance, all of a sudden the roles become clear and it's a beautiful fluid movement. Well, the contrast is the dance within the Godhead is perfect. It's flawless. There's no toe stepping. And so that is our beautiful model that we have. In general, God the Father, He speaks and initiates. God the Son submits to the Father and carries out His will. And the Holy Spirit sustains us through His presence. So it's in the Godhead where relationship begins. That's our perfect example of what relationship looks like. And it's the relationship within the Godhead, remember, that we see equal importance, equal deity, but there's different distinct roles. It is the flawless relationship in the Trinity. It's our good Father. So our Creator functions, so to speak, as these three persons in this perfect relationship, and then He created us also to have relationships to kind of allude or point back to our great Creator. And it's a profound mystery when it talks about um, a husband and a wife and their relationship in Ephesians 5.32. It says, the marriage relationship's a profound mystery that refers to Christ in the church. Now in this sermon, I'm not going to focus on what it means to be a woman But I think it's real important at the beginning of this message to make crystal clear that just as there's no person within the Godhead that's more important than the other, man is not more important than woman. And woman, or yeah, and woman is not more important than man. They're equal, but they have different roles. One powerful thought to meditate on is that Eve is referred to as Adam's helper. Who else in the Godhead do we know is referred to as the Helper? The Holy Spirit. It says, Jesus says this in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He'll give you another Helper. That's the Holy Spirit. 
that He may abide with you forever. So realize that God referred to Himself as Helper. And so, we need to put that at the forefront of our minds that just to remind us that Eve is Adam's helper doesn't mean that she was lesser than Adam. It just means that she had a different role than Adam. God gave us distinct roles as men and women, not to demean or lessen one role or the other, but because He wants us to display a picture of Him. That's the very root of why it matters that we know and understand what it means to be man and what it means to be a woman. Because the way we live as men and women is a testimony of who God is and how He functions. So we should ask ourselves, do we know what our roles are? And are we living out our roles in such a way that our children are looking at us, that society is looking at us, and they see some sort of a picture of the relationship within the Godhead? Defining biblical manhood and womanhood isn't uh, learning to live life according to a set of rules. It's about displaying God to the world and enjoying God. And when we understand that God created us as man and women with distinct roles for His glory, which in turn is for our good, and when we submit to God's design and carry out our roles, then we're going to be good husbands and good wives, good fathers and good mothers, and we're going to function in society the way that God designed for us to function. So what does it mean to be a man? I'd like to invite you to go back to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to see how God designed man to be in the garden before the fall, and then what changed after the fall. So Genesis chapter 2, we'll start with verse 1. And we're going to see that before the fall, before sin entered the world, God created Adam to work, to listen and obey God's word, and to lead and protect Eve and his future family. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done. So we see right off the bat, God is a worker. It says three times in the first three verses of chapter 2 that God worked. So work is a good thing. Let's continue. Verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So stop right there. So God made the heavens and the earth, and He made a mist to go up from the ground. But no plants had started to grow yet. Why? It says, Says in, there's two, two reasons. It says in verse 5, it says, because there's no rain yet, and there's no man to work the ground. So, we see that the first picture of man, of, that God created man to do, was to work. 
work is a good thing. We're made in God's image and likeness. So just as God is a worker, we work as well. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Dillian and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So once again, we see right there, clear as day, God put Adam in the Garden to work it and to keep it. And then we also see that the garden was pleasant to look at and it produced fruit for Adam to eat. So it supplied everything that Adam needed. It gave him all of his necessities. When we think about like pleasant in uh, verse 9, I was thinking about um, different plants and things that uh, I don't think we can eat. Like I was thinking of a poinsettia. I think like that would kill us, right? We eat that, but it's beautiful to look at. We buy them at Christmas time and stuff. And so God makes beautiful things, things that are just gorgeous to look at because he's gorgeous and awesome. And so he makes things that are also like that. Now, I was thinking about at the end of each of the days of creation, he always said he did this and then it was good. Over and over again, we see that God does these things. He supplies not only food that looks good to eat and sustains and gives us everything we need for our necessities, but he makes things that are just beautiful. I kind of think of Adam sometimes just sitting there and just going, wow, look at all this, just like we do when we go out. We have these awesome redwood trees in there. I'm not too big on the uh, marijuana plants, but that's beside the point. But it's gorgeous out there. And, and there's things to look at because God is a beautiful God that makes beautiful things. And I learned a lot from this pastor I just came across named Vadi Bachman. And he kind of linked to, uh, for me this idea of pleasant and making things beautiful with verses 11 and 12, which we already read, but I want to go into it again. Verse 11 says, The name of the first, it's talking about the river, is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. I just always went over that and never thought about it. And the gold of that land is good. Dillium and onyx stone are there. We know that gold is beautiful. We know that onyx is beautiful. I didn't know what dillium is, so I googled it. And it said that it looks like pearls and crystals. This is the Garden of Eden. And so this is before fall. And so Adam is sitting there with his gorgeousness, his fruit and all these different things around him, this gorgeous stuff. And I was thinking, wow, that's amazing. But then Pastor Vadi Bachman also drew this connection with Revelation in the New Jerusalem. Gold streets, jasper, 
precious stones, all these things that, that the new heavens and the new earth are going to have. And so he kind of draws this conclusion. I think we could possibly uh, infer that maybe not only were those precious stones and metals and stuff there to be admired, but maybe for him to fashion and work. That was really neat. I'd never, I'd never uh, thought about that before um, when I was looking at this. So God placed Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, and some translations say to develop it and to guard it, which I also think is a very good uh, thought um, for a translation because we know the serpent is going to be in the garden and it needs to be guarded from the serpent. So let's see what happened to work after the fall. How did work change? Did it go away? Let's read verses 17 through 19 in chapter 3. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. But before the fall, we get this picture of work where it doesn't seem like it was hard. I think it was joyful. It was something that was just, you, you just do. You're designed to do it. It's good. After the fall, the ground was cursed. And it said that there's thorns and different things like that that are growing up. And I immediately, I was thinking about the days where we were hauling hay. It's funny that Car- my friend Carlos is here. We used to haul hay together. And I'm telling you what, when you grab a hay bale with, uh, with the gloves on and those, there's thistles in that bale, it does not matter if you're wearing gloves. It goes right through those gloves and it hurts. My, my voice is fluctuated and I'm preaching. That's fine. Have you ever gone home from work and you're like, that was a hard day at work? It, it was not something that was enjoyable. That's a result of the fall. Work didn't go away. It just got harder. By the sweat of our brow. Cursed is the ground. People try to get out of work all the time. Right? Have you ever done this? You don't need to raise your hand, but thought about maybe calling in a sick day and justified it by saying, well, I'm sick of work. I work workers' comp fraud. I see people all the time that either come up with illnesses or or, uh, ways that they got hurt and they never did or they exaggerate however they got hurt so that they can get out of work. We see different uh, things like the welfare system get abused by some people because they, they don't want to work themselves. Well, God says if you don't eat, I mean, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. It says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But not only does God call us to work so that we may eat, but He also says that our work glorifies Him. The way in which we work. It says that in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And also we see in Colossians 1.16, it tells us that all things have been created through God and for God. So the way in which we work is either going to be bringing glory 
to the Father or it's not going to be glorifying the Father. I wanted to look at one last thought about work. Would you look again at Genesis chapter 3, verse 19? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. When does our work end? When we die. 19 makes it crystal clear. Our work ends when we die. Biblical retirement occurs when we die. What this means is that God's view of retirement is different than the world's view of retirement. We all know what the world's view of retirement is. I mean, we're bombarded with it. We, we go to work, we work as hard as we can to make as much money as we can, and we store up as many things as we can so that we can retire as early as we can, maybe 45 or 50 if we're really, really lucky. And then so we can spend the rest of our time glorifying ourselves, living for ourselves, living an eternal vacation for ourselves, chasing that satisfaction and the joy of vacation forever. But the irony is that true joy only comes from Christ. And true satisfaction can only come, <clears throat> can only be experienced when we live in accordance with how our Creator designed us to live. And He designed us to work until the day we die. We may need to retire early, though. You know, maybe um, someone will get injured and that forces them into retirement. Maybe uh, God blessed you with an opportunity to retire from your earthly job early. That could be a good thing. The question that I think we need to think about and address is, if, if you've retired from your earthly job, what's next? How are you spending the rest of your life? I know that there is one person in our congregation, and I'm not going to mention his name, that is retired from his earthly job that disciples me all the time. There's actually a couple of you in here, and I receive text messages and encouragement, different articles to think about. Uh, you meet with me at lunches, and uh, you challenge me with different thoughts. You pray for me. You pray with me. You build me up. One of, one of you that's out there sent me a, a text uh, that I loved uh, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, from Martin Luther, which says, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. I look at that like, that's good. That's good. I'm so thankful to be surrounded by godly men and godly women in our church body. You know, I've never seen a person uh, retire um, that has continued to live for Jesus with all their heart that isn't satisfied and filled with joy. But it, I have seen people that have retired to just live for themselves that do not seem to have that same joy and satisfaction. So God's Word is true and is good. 
So please hear me clearly. I'm not saying that cruises are bad. I'm not saying that going on vacation are bad. Sometimes they're good. They, they can build us up. They can rejuvenate us. And, and it could be a good time to rest. And, and it's good. But what I'm saying is that retirement from working for the glory of the Lord is bad. That is bad. Biblical manhood is a call to work for God, for His glory, until the day that we breathe our last breath. And it's not going to be easy. That's why God gave us the helper of the Holy Spirit and the helper of our spouse to be there with us and help us to persevere through work. Amen and amen. Now, secondly, let's look at, God, let's look at Adam's relationship with God and His law. So before the fall, Adam's relationship was as close as it could be with the Lord. Adam listened to the Lord and followed His instructions. And I know some of you might be thinking, uh, what are you talking about the law before the fall? The Ten Commandments hadn't happened yet. You know, there's sin hadn't entered the world. There, there's no law. But would you go with me to chapter 2 and let's look at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's easy to overlook the fact that before the fall, God gave Adam instructions. He gave him law. God told Adam that he could eat of any tree of the garden except for one. So law is a good thing. God as Creator knows what's best for us. And He knew what Adam needed. He knew that Adam needed boundaries to protect him when we think of laws in general and even the laws within the bible i think sometimes we can focus on a thought of oh we're being restricted you know um, as if god's keeping something from us it's like you can have any of the candy in the kitchen except for you just can't have the cookie out of that cookie jar and then all we focus is on i want the cookie in the cookie jar But we need to remember that God loves us. And that's why He's given us His Word and He's given us instruction. 1 John 4.8 says, If anyone does does not love, he does not know God. Because God is love. God is a loving Creator and He gave Adam the whole garden to eat from. Everything that he needed for enjoyment and satisfaction, everything he needed to sustain him, including that relationship with God, was there. He is the loving God that gives us His Word and gives us guidance and parameters and direction. God gave Adam His law to save him from dying. God told Adam that he can eat. He, he, all he could, do, he could eat from any tree, but the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if he ate from it, he would surely die. He loved him. That's why God gives us law. And parameters because he loves us and he wants to protect us and he doesn't want us to die and wander off from him. Let's continue. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And when he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. This one incident is the most horrific incident in the history of mankind. We know the effects of this. We know that because of this, we were separated from God. Look at the consequences that of Adam's sin. After they both ate from the tree, God asked a few rhetorical questions. He said first, he says, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was. He wasn't, it was a rhetorical question. But Adam was hiding. He'd never hid from him before. In fact, I think when Adam saw God, he probably ran up to him often. And then Adam replies, he doesn't even answer God's question. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's what sin does. It causes us to hide from the one who loves us. Ironically, the one who could actually heal us from the sin. Then God asked Adam, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then listen to Adam's response. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. This seems like nail-biting. If I was there, right there, I would want a big shield up in front of me. I don't want to be any part of this right now. He just pointed the finger back at his wife. She, her, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the one that's the only one that's adequate for me, the helper that you gave to me. She's the one. But wait, not only her. The one that you gave to me. So if you really want to get technical, God, you caused me to sin. Really? That's what sin does. When we sin, it causes us to hide from God, go away from Him, and start to blame. And eventually, our blame. Why did you put me in this situation, God? You did this. And we do that. That's what happens when we turn from God's law. We become afraid of God and we hide from Him and we blame Him. And ironically, He is our Redeemer. He's the only one that can heal us and save us from the sin that is killing us. You know, today we live in a fallen world. And we're so thankful because he didn't leave Adam alone. He didn't leave Eve alone after they sinned. He still was, he still gave them grace. He still gave them his word and he's still given you and I his word today. The only thing that could save us is the word of the Lord. 
And I opened up the Bible to Psalm 119, and it didn't matter where I landed in that whole uh, chapter. And it's the longest chapter of, of the Bible, and it's all about God's Word and how great God's Word is. And I want to look at verses 97 through 104 with you. 119, 97, 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I want to just make one comment with that, with verse 100. Notice maturity. Notice wisdom doesn't come from age alone. It comes from knowing the Word of the Lord. Verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep Your Word. I do not turn aside from Your rules, for You have taught me. How sweet are Your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through Your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. So the psalmist here loves the Word of God. He meditates on it day and night. And the Word of God is like honey in his mouth. Is that how you and I would describe God's Word? Is it like honey in our mouths? Is it something that we want to meditate on day and night? Good. He's one of the guys that mentors me. We're familiar with the saying, WWJD, what would Jesus do? But the only way that we're going to know what would Jesus do is if we know what Jesus said. We need to know the Word of the Lord. It needs to be at the center and the forefront of our lives. How well do we know God's Word? Do you know God's Word well enough so that if someone comes knocking on your door and they're teaching you and they're trying to get you to follow a religion or a different gospel, that you know that this is wrong or this is right? You know the Word of God well enough to know that. You love the Word so that it's at the forefront of your mind and, and as you hear different things at work and as you're going about your day that you're able to discern right from wrong. Husbands, are we sanctifying our wives by the washing of water with the Word? As it says in Ephesians 5.25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. And fathers, are you bringing up your children in the instruction of the Lord? Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Are we in the Word so much, loving the, the Word so much that we're discipling our families? We're going to be held accountable for that. This is mature manhood. To know and love God and His Word and to bring up our families and those around us according to the Word of the Lord. It's so tempting to neglect time with God. Um, prayer time. Family Bible studies. I want to be careful how I, how I say some of, the, some of this next stuff. Um, The world 
um, values, I think, by and large, family. Okay? Uh, we applaud it. We, we applaud marriages that have been together for 65 years. 63. 63 years. <laughs> we applaud family time, time with our kids. They're so important. Um, we say, uh, you know, don't work too much. You know, it's, it's okay. Go, go, go be with the family and do all this stuff. And so that, that is kind of the picture of, of being American. You know, get involved with a lot of things. You know, always be there with your kids. Take them to all these different functions. You know, get them to karate class or sports or whatever the case may be. And that's a good thing. And it can be confusing because it sounds very similar to what the Bible says. The Bible says that we should spend time with our family and do all these different things. But there's a huge, huge thing that we need to remember as Christians. You can have the American dream. You can have the family or the, the house that's gorgeous and the white picket fence and all the cars and everything paid off and kids that are just teachers' pets and, and uh, the best sport athletes or, or piano players or whatever the case may be. You can have all that and not have Christ and have done everything in this world for nothing. And sending your family straight to hell if we don't put Christ first. Our families need to see as men who are leading our families that Christ is number one. They need to know, it was so hard for me when I, when I was working uh, shift work and I'd get off at, I don't know, six or seven in the morning or something on Sunday mornings and church was happening. I did not want to come to church. I was tired. I was tired of dealing with people. I didn't want to paint on this smile. Or, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, I didn't want to come. But God convicted me inside, and I didn't do it every time, but God convicted me inside, your kids need to see that Sunday morning is important. And so I made myself come, and I, I, I think there were some times where I was half asleep while we were singing and listening to a sermon. But they need to see that there is a distinction, that it's important. Can you imagine if all the Christian families said, Christ is first and different uh, getting together on Sundays or, or, or our Bible study on, on this part of the week or whatever is most important. They would have to change the way the world functions around us because they make money off of us. They would have to reschedule what happens on weekends and stuff on Sundays. When, when I drive into a... I think Las Casuelos is closed on Sundays. I've tried to drive there after church to go eat a couple times. And I, oh yeah, it's closed. And then you know what I think? Good for them. Good for them. I have no idea if they're Christian or not, but it's, maybe they are. Good for them. Men, we need to lead our families in such a way that shows that Christ and His Word is what's most important because it is what is most important. As we're going to see right now as we look at Adam's failure to lead and protect Eve when the serpent visited her. Adam took his eyes off of God's law just long enough that he became silent and shrunk away from his role as leader and protector and he watched Satan deceive his wife. Notice that the serpent came to Eve and not Adam. Why? There's a few different reasons that it says in Scripture, but it says because she was weaker, 
But don't get this twisted. She's not weaker in the sense that she's less important, less wise, less moral, or anything like that. Satan was striking at Adam's position of leadership. Satan is all about glorifying himself. In any shot that he can take at God's design, he's going to do it. If Eve was created first and Adam was created second, the serpent would have gone to Adam. What the great deceiver did in this situation was to take a strike at God's design for male headship. Because in doing so, Satan forever caused tension and confusion in our roles as men and women. The outcome of the fall resulted in a contention between the husband and the wife. Genesis 3.16 says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's God talking to Eve. So, since the fall, men, we've struggled to leave our families like Christ. Like servant leaders. Christ loved the church. He died for her and gave Himself for her. Christ washed the disciples' feet. Instead, there's times where, lots of times, where sin in our lives has caused us to try to lead our families as a domineering ruler, like a dictator. And we've also provoked our kids to anger instead of building them up. And likewise, women have a desire, have had desire because of sin to go outside their role and usurp their husband's leadership. Satan's attack was calculated to disrupt God's design and cause role confusion. Because the roles in which God created Adam and Eve to function were a replica of the relationship in the Godhead. It's not exact. It's supposed to be sort of a picture of it. Three persons equal, but different roles. Satan's attack was calculated. He made a precision strike which caused disruption and confusion in our families. So how should Adam have responded? How should he have responded when the serpent approached Eve? Adam had a good relationship with God. He walked with God. He knew God's law. He knew God's word. So at the first sign of the serpent starting to come up to his wife, he should have been able to see this one is bad. And he should have gotten in between the serpent and his wife and stood in between them and prayed to God. And God would have come and the serpent would have vanished. That's what He should have done. And men, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to know God and we're supposed to know His Word so well that whenever we see a sign of trouble, we step in between and we call out to God and God will come and deliver us and help us. But that's, of course, not what Adam did. He turned away from God's Word and he trusted the serpent and he allowed Eve to take the first bite, and then Adam took the fruit, and he also took a bite, and then sin entered the world. And although Eve took that first bite, who did God come to? Adam. Verse 9 says, The Lord God 
called to the man. God went to Adam and questioned him because Adam was responsible. He didn't protect his wife. And the result of it was death and sin entering the world. It's a lot of, lot of weight. Sin has messed up work. It's messed up our relationship with God and understanding His law. And it's caused uh, role confusion. It's caused us to be horrible leaders at times. But there is good news. There is good news. Though sin came into the world through the first Adam, there is forgiveness and restoration through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17 says, For if, because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45 The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Through Christ, we have redemption and strength to be godly men and women. Because of man's sin, the ground that we're called to work produces thorns. Jesus wore a crown of thorns on the cross. Because man sinned in turning from God's Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because man failed to love and lead his wife, the bridegroom of the church, Christ, he came and died for our sins so that we are forgiven our sins and can be restored. In Christ, we can live as we're called and designed to live. And may it be in our church body here at Redwood Christian Fellowship. All to the glory of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and have communion. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your goodness to us and Your mercy. I pray, Father, that You would prepare our hearts as we come before You now with communion. Amen.